it's good to be back with the About Sustainability podcast. In this episode, we talk to our colleagues Eric and Toto about climate science and how it's linked to policy through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also called the IPCC. The IPCC produces assessment reports every seven years, and these assessment reports are authored by three working groups. Both Eric and Toto have been part of the authoring process in IPCC Working Group 3. Surarmanto Budi Nugroho, who we call Toto in our office and during this discussion, is a research manager in IGES's City Task Force. He co-authored Chapter 10 on Transport, as well as the Summary for Policymakers, which we abbreviate as SPM, of the assessment report. And Eric Zussman is a research leader in IGES's Integrated Sustainability Center. He co-authored Chapter 17, Accelerating the Transition in the Context of Sustainable Development, we had such a fascinating discussion learning about the process of producing the report that we weren't able to dig into the content of the report quite as much as I would have liked. But hopefully we'll have a chance to revisit this topic on another occasion. Particularly interesting to me was the review process that each chapter goes through and the complicated issues around equity in selecting members of the working groups. That's enough of me telling you about it. It's time for you to hear it for yourself. Maybe Eric, if I could ask you to tell us a little bit about what the IPCC is? IPCC, or Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, is basically a panel that's made up of 195 uh, representatives from governments uh, from different countries. And uh, it was created to provide state-of-the-art science on climate change for those governments. It was created in uh, 1988. So it's important to underline here that this was at a time when there was a lot of interest in strengthening the scientific foundation for policy on international issues like climate change. There was a hope that uh, by bringing together the most cutting edge and leading scientists that uh, this would also create the foundation for a climate change agreement. And so created in 1988 by uh, the UNEP, uh, the United Nations Environment Program and the World Meteorological uh, Organization. And after it was created, uh, it started working on uh, a series of uh, assessment reports. And those assessment reports would, as hoped, also sit at the uh, center of the uh, main Framework Agreement on Climate Change, the United Nations uh, Framework Convention on uh, Climate Change. Okay, so you said it was created by UNEP and WMO. And then there's also the UNFCCC, which you just defined the acronym for. So is IPCC, is it its own organization? Is it under the umbrella of UNEP or kind of what's the relationship between all of those bodies? Right. So, um, yeah, in, in terms of the IPCC, it informs the UNFCCC, but it's uh, not underneath the UNFCCC, but it is underneath the UNEP and uh, WMO. And the UNFCCC can make requests to the IPCC to uh, develop reports that are of importance to uh, the UNFCCC processes. So, for instance, uh, recently, uh, many of us might have heard of uh, this uh, 1.5 degree report 
And uh, this was developed by the IPCC based upon a request or based upon actually one of the decisions coming out of discussions over the implementation of the UNFCCC. Eric, in the case of IPBIS, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, it's regarded as independent. And as far as I understand, IPCC is the same. And I've never quite understood what that means. Uh, uh, whereas, so um, the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, is like the UNFCCC or very similar. Um, they're both UN bodies, but then the 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 IPES and, as far as I understand, IPCC are regarded as independent. Do, do you know what's meant by that? From my understanding, that you know, it's IPCC is under. UNEP and, and WMO, but the conclusions that are reached during the reporting process mm-hmm. are independent of UNEP and, and WMO. In other words, you know, the uh, UNEP and WMO, like any other stakeholders, they can comment on the reports, which are, are sort of the central outputs of the IPCC, but they don't have undue influence on the outcomes of the, those, those reports. Okay. Yeah, probably in addition to that one. Uh, as part of the uh, UNFCCC uh, process, the result of the assessment report usually as input for the UNFCCC process. For example, Kyoto Protocol in '97. This is actually two years before. There, there is an assessment report uh, second, which is uh, used as an input for that process, and also like a Paris Agreement 2015. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, there is a assessment report number five. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like how this IPCC uh, report contribute to the UNFCCC process, actually. These assessment reports and the working groups, I understand from the little reading I did before we started this, that there are three working groups um, that contribute to each assessment report. And then I, mm-hmm. I think the two of you are both part of one of the working groups. So if you could talk about that yeah. a little bit, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Bob. In the beginning, it is not really well established the working group because it is starting, but uh, uh, the process is evolving. So then in the last uh, two assessment reports, there, there is a, a three different working group. The first working group on the physical science examine the, the, what is the physical condition of the earth related to the climate. And then in the working group two, it's about the adaptation to the climate for vulnerability. And the third is on the mitigation, how we should do to, uh, to mitigate the, the climate in the future. That's uh, basically the explanation. So which working group are you um, contributing? Uh, I don't know if you're in just one or if you contribute to multiple ones, but could, could you elaborate on that? What is I just doing with the okay. working groups? Yeah, we are working uh, particularly in the working group three, which is a mitigation to the climate. However, in, in the process, we are also invited to contribute uh, as the like, reviewer or like uh, to make a comment to the other group. And also, especially because, like, for example, uh, during the process, we also uh, refer to the what have done in other working group, like working group one is on the physical science. And then we use that one in our uh, to determine on what the mitigation action need to do yeah, that, that that's basically uh, the linkage between the group so what does it mean to to contribute to a working group what work are you doing and it sounds like maybe the outputs of these working groups are not coming out at the same time but are coming out in a staggered fashion are they all kind of producing outputs about the same time or is it one feeds into the yeah, next yeah. one feeds into the next one it's very, very good question. The first, for example, like starting with the physical examination on the working group one, 
because this is the basic foundation for example how the uh, the future condition and then it, uh, that will be used for the working group two for the adaptation how we need to adapt to the situation and then uh, to avoid some uh, failure in the future or to make a better in the future then we need to do some mitigation that's basically the sequence and yes uh, of course uh, it is not in parallel but in series like the first is the working group one and then the working group two and then the working group three does that mean that um the policy options that are provided by these reports is that done only for working group two and three or is it done for all three of them do, do all three of them provide options for policy makers i think working group two and working group three have a stronger emphasis on policy and we're supposed to be they say um, policy relevant but not uh, policy prescriptive mm-hmm. i think the word that underused options is a good word in the sense that we outline what some of the options might be and some of their benefits and drawbacks and we imply what the recommendation might be but we're not telling governments exactly what they need to do and so then the output is this report the, the last product they have a, like a synthesis report synthesis for the three working group that will be published in this coming october so after those three working group done, and then uh, the, they make a synthesis of these three different uh, reports. Okay, so that's another like kind of editing and putting everything together process that happens after the working groups have their work done. Is that, that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. In terms of the review of these reports, um, there's a pretty extensive review process for all three of the the working group reports. And so you develop three different drafts. And each time you develop a draft, uh, you'll get comments on the content. Who are those comments from? Yeah. So um, the comments are open to the public and uh, to governments and uh, researchers. And I would say, you know, it varies from one chapter to the next, but I would say researchers, research institutes with an environmental focus, and then uh, governments were the sort of three biggest groups. We start the uh, assessment report in 2019, and then we have the first draft in 2020. And then uh, we receive a comment, more than uh, 30,000 comments from uh, the, this is very, this is open. 30,000. Yeah, 30,000. Wow. More than 30,000. And then we revise based on the comment. And then that's uh, come to the second order draft in 2021, I think. And then we also receive another 29,000. Then we have the final draft. The final draft is only comment by the government. The, th- the third one. The third one, we receive comment about 5,000. So in total, we receive about 59,212 review comment. In total. Wow. And then after we finish the draft and uh, the government give a comment about the 4,000, 5,000, then we finish that, that, the final draft. And then we make a summary with what we call it as summary for policymaker. I'm a drafting member of that uh, summary policy of the policymaker. Several authors from the chapter are selected to make a summary of the each chapter. Because in total, we have 2,912 pages for the whole wow. report. So nobody will read that one <laughs> so then we make a summary which is uh, about the 64 pages yeah, just uh, quickly on the review process too um out of all of those comments we need to have a response to every one of them it doesn't mean we have to accept yeah. every single one of them but they basically give us this uh, monster spreadsheet and yeah. um and then you know know how it was done in the chapters that you worked on toto but you know basically you're assigned a cluster of comments and you need yeah. to write down either accept, reject, or partially accept, and how you're yeah. going to deal with yeah, the yeah. comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
because first we make a, a category of the comment, Bob, like uh, this is a substantial comment or editorial comment or others. Like uh, editorial, we, we make just edit, like, uh, okay, uh, but it's sub- substantial, then we need to respond whether we accept that comment or we reject or something like that. The, the commenting and responding to the commenting process is in some ways just as difficult or as uh, time-consuming as the drafting process. Mm. The comments are coming from sort of two types of categories, at least from my impression. One is uh, researchers that want to get their own research cited within the IPCC. Mm -hmm. So they're basically saying, uh, you should look at this article and cite this article. And then the other, uh, governments are checking every word and, and the tone of the phrasing and whatnot. So, you know, if there's something that says, you know, fossil, su- fossil fuel subsidies are not a good thing, you might have a government say it might not be a good thing in this context, but in this context, it might actually be a good thing. Or So please check that. <laughs> there's an effort, even though we're trying to be policy relevant and policy, pr- not policy prescriptive, there's an effort to strongly influence things in government. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Because this needs to be approved by 195 Uh, state member uh, the approval session is uh, about two weeks it's about uh, to approve 60 pages of summary uh, i i mentioned before like uh, this is what 2912 and then we make it slimming down to 64 then uh, that 64 need to be approved by the government line by line sentence by sentence yeah it sounds like a really tough grueling process how yeah. do you go through that process i guess two questions One is a lot of these events we've been discussing in the past conversations we've had have been substantially delayed because of COVID. And I wonder if that has impacted this process. And then what is that process? Are you meeting in person with workshops? Are you doing it differently than you normally would under the restrictions uh, around COVID? With COVID, I think like much of the work that we do, you know, there's been a, a zoomification of the Uh, way that we've developed the report. And I mean, prior to COVID, we'd have uh, these uh, author meetings, uh, in-person author meetings. And uh, Toto and I attended two of these. Um, and basically at those meetings, you have small group discussions uh, with your with the chapter that you're assigned to. And then there's also plenary uh, discussions as well as cross-group discussions. And um, in each of those fora, your constantly thinking about conceiving, you know, how you're going to develop the text, especially for the chapter that you're assigned to. And then I think as the process evolves, um, you might join other chapters or you might become involved in other chapters or other related activities. And at least for me, the most grueling part was the in-chapter work. Uh, I mean, we'd have these really intense two to three hour um, drafting discussions. You would sit within a room with really smart and dedicated people then try to develop something that captures the essence of you know what's happening in the literature and so you know really we're trying to assess the literature but part of it also is to synthesize it in a way that makes it compelling intriguing and will motivate action on the ground so it's partially an assessment but there's a lot of synthesis going on there and interacting with you know these um albert einstein eleanor Olmstrom type uh, people in this room to build that synthesis in a way that you can really move things forward specifically in our chapter we focused on accelerating the transition in the context of sustainable development so we had two themes that were pretty new the whole chapter itself was a new chapter it hadn't been covered Uh, as a chapter as such in, in uh, the reporting process. And uh, these two themes were this accelerating transition. So this whole idea of sustainability transitions 
which has really grown over the past 15 years or so in, in the work on climate change and sustainable development, sustainability transitions, was one of the themes that we tried to deal with a lot. And the other was in the context of sustainable development. And so making linkages to the sustainable development goals. Is this leading into another international negotiation? I don't think you'll get like another high profile agreement like uh, the Paris Agreement necessarily. The intent to this uh, to submit this report before the COP27 in uh, Egypt. So this, this will be a, a kind of input to the next COP meeting. I wanted to ask two kind of unrelated questions. So but let me ask them at the same time and then maybe one of you can take one and the other one can take the other question. Um, the one is just to confirm that the the report writing is based on on um, existing literature, as far as I understand, right? Yeah. Okay, so yes. perhaps a, you've, uh, perhaps a yes is all that's required for that, but feel free to elaborate. But um, yeah, I think it's just maybe important for people to know that uh, research is not done during the, the compilation of the report. It's, it's drawing on existing uh, literature, right, which needs to have been submitted by a particular date somewhere during the assessment process. And then the other question is, um, Toto, you mentioned earlier on the, the SPM, the Summary for Policymakers, uh, and you also mentioned that the document itself is nearly 3,000 pages long, uh, and you jokingly said nobody will read that, which is, which is perhaps true. Uh, but then why does the document exist? You know, w w uh, why have that document if, uh, if nobody's going to read it? Or is it a case of the SPM provides uh, links to the document so you can then go and search for additional information in the full document? Is that the idea? Yeah, so the, I, I first uh, will answer on the SPM. The SPM is like a kind of synthesis of our uh, working group to report. Mm -hmm. And in the summary, there is a head, headline statement and uh, a bullet mm -hmm. point. Each of them uh, linkages to the main report. So, for example, uh, headline statement number one, uh, like uh, uh, this one link, link to the chapter one, for example, in the framing, uh, because the first part is adaptation, uh, uh, introduction mm -hmm. and framing. So if you read the summary for policymaker for the government and then they need to have more mm -hmm. detail, then it was supported by the main report, basically. Okay, right. The answer to your question, Andre, about the literature and, mm -hmm. and is that, yes, it's assessment of the literature. And um, it's supposed to be a systematic uh, literature review. So you're supposed to use things like uh, Scopus uh, or other search engines to do a keyword search and then de determine, you know, what are the sort of key themes and then to organize it and synthesize it in a way that's, once again, policy relevant. <laughs> mm -hmm. Probably the systematic review is uh, what I understand from the process is in part of to avoid bias and example. Like the walking and cycling is actually good for health. This is the example in my chapter. But the other literature also said, like uh, it is also increased the risk of injury or traffic accident and also uh, uh, air pollution, like uh, receive the air pollution. So we need to cover both in our uh, assessment. Like this is good for health, but also you have another risk. But we also have like the level of confidence, like. Uh, if uh, most of literature say A, we can have the high confidence. But if it is uh, the literature say A, but the other literature say B, which is uh, opposite, then we need to re to decrease the confidence level of this uh, this statement, whether this will be medium or uh, low in confidence. Mm -hmm. etc. So that's basically how we do the assessment in in this uh, in this report. How are the the contributors to these working groups selected? The first IPCC make open call for. Uh, submission of the like uh, author to be author for this one nomination 
in 2017 and uh, country can uh, nominate some people or uh, you organization can submit the uh, uh, nomination because it is open and then in total you IPCC receive about 800 uh, applicants for this position and then they select uh, based on the composition uh, like on consideration of the like uh, developing and developed countries north and south and also like a gender balance uh, etc and then uh, in in the final one is about uh, 278 authors uh, uh, selected uh, in, in to be participate to develop this report but uh, this one is voluntary So you you should remember the working in IPCC is voluntary. You cannot get paid from any anywhere. So for about three and four years, it is voluntary, uh, consuming uh, time time consuming, but voluntary. So it is not really attractive for some people. Mm. But yeah, yeah, that that's basically the basic idea. I can see why it's it could be important that it's unpaid or or necessary that it's unpaid. But I wonder if that also inserts a bias into the document. If the only people who can contribute to this paper are people who can spend three or four years of significant unpaid time to contribute to the report, maybe that eliminates a large group of people from being able to participate in this process. That's actually true. Uh, Bob, I, I talked with the, the author from my country, Indonesia. When the when the uh, the national government uh, sending the nomination to the uh, organization within the country, some of them uh, hesitant to do because this is unpaid. So you need to have uh, spend a lot of energy for this unpaid. Why it is unpaid? Because we need to have a like um, neutral position, as mentioned. Uh, we need to avoid some bias. Every year we sign. We, we don't have any specific interest. Uh, that is to to make this process looks like uh, neutral. But actually, when we we discuss within our chapter, for example, because the author also have uh, some preference, like what need to be highlighted. Mm. So <laughs> there is uh, some some uh, uh, very good debate and discussion on uh, which should be prioritized and something like that. In the because we are talking uh, this working group three is talking about like a sensitive issue on the mitigation. Mm. And then they're like uh, very sensitive for some country or some uh, region, uh, but we need to make it uh, as mentioned by Eric. This is policy relevant. Mm. <laughs> this is uh, this is option. <laughs> okay. Also, this is sensitive for you, but this is option. <laughs> we, we can uh, say, uh, frankly say like that. And and uh, is there quite a strong effort made to ensure representation, global representation, and the balance? Uh, Between developed and developing countries, is is that uh, something that's discussed in some detail in the planning stages? Yeah, they try it. Like uh, in in my, for example, in my chapter, the uh, coordinating lead author actually the beginning two is only like a one from Australia, uh, a male, and the the other one female from uh, Brazil. So they try to have like a both region and also developing and develop and uh, also mm-hmm. gender gender okay. balance. And within the within the uh, team member, we have like uh, we cover almost all five continents: one from America, one from uh, uh, two from two uh, from uh, Europe, uh, one from uh, several from Asia, and also from Africa. We have also from Africa. Yeah, I think that one of the criteria 
uh, in selecting the author group is uh, the regional representation and gender balance. How that applies to any specific person, it's difficult to judge. But in terms of the assignment to the different uh, chapters, you definitely see an emphasis coordinating lead authors, usually one from developed and one from developing country. And then within the group itself, it, as Toto suggested, it's mm-hmm. across many different regions with a pretty significant uh, emphasis on gender balance. Do you know if that's always been like that, going right back to the beginning of of IPCC, has there always been that effort to achieve balance or is it something that's developed a long time over time? I, I think, Andre, that it's it's become a growing point of emphasis. To be honest with you, I don't know for the first assessment report how that played out, right. but yeah, yeah. I do recall maybe Toto, like at the very first authors meeting in Edinburgh, I think, you know, there was a picture of the, the diversity of the group and, and some reflection on how that diversity has uh, or how it's become more diverse over time. Uh, that mm-hmm. sort of sticks okay. in the back of my head. Okay. Right. So maybe we can now tra- kind of pivot into the actual content of the report. Uh, maybe we start at a high level. What is okay. the main, I, I don't know what makes sense, but the top few points of this report that really stand out? Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Actually, I mentioned it a, a little bit uh, in when I explained it about the summary for policymaker, because uh, one of the reasons in, in the early introduction of the summary of the policymaker, they, they mentioned about three main points. First is uh, involving global landscape, like in the process like uh, UNFCCC, the uh, Paris Agreement, UN uh, Sustainable Development Agenda, and etc. And then the second point, uh, they recognize about the importance of the new emerging actor and approach. Emerging actor, we have a, a more uh, significant approach uh, 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 important role of the non-state actor, cities and subnational government, private sector, citizen, local communities, transnational uh, uh, transnational activities, and public-private partnership. And the third one, we as mentioned by Eric also in the beginning, there, uh, there is a more uh, tendency of the close relationship between climate mitigation, adaptation, and sustainable development. We need to to go to that direction. So basically. This is the new thing that we uh, in, embedded in this new assessment report, I think. I'll also throw in a few sort of headline messages, too. I mean, I think one of the big headline messages, right, is that we're still not doing enough to really avoid climate emergency uh, and or to stay within uh, this uh, 1.5 degree goal by the end of this uh, century. The emissions of uh, greenhouse gases between uh, 2010 and 2019 continue to rise. Um, the good news is compared to the previous decade, 2000 to 2009, they rose at a, a lower rate. Uh, but they still continue to increase and it places us on a trajectory that uh, make it very difficult for us to achieve uh, this 1.5 degree goal. Um, and this 1.5 degree goal uh, is really, you know, sort of a key threshold for avoiding serious sea level rise, um, avoiding um, intensification of storms and, uh, um, you know, many of the socioeconomic losses that would uh, be attended with some of those impacts. So we're not doing enough um, still, and the emissions continue to rise, although at a lower rate. And this is also true if you look at, I mentioned previously, these nationally determined contributions. These are the pledges that countries are coming up with for their emission reductions between 2020 and 2030. And the NDCs are still not ambitious enough. Commitments that are made within the NDCs are still not ambitious enough. 
So those are some of the worrying headlines. Some of the good news is that especially um, when we look at you know some of the key mitigation technologies, looking at renewable energy, solar energy, wind power, and then in the transport sector, Toto will probably elaborate upon this too, but electric vehicles. Um, the diffusion rate of these technologies has increased dramatically, and the costs of these technologies have come down dramatically as well, uh, much greater than what was anticipated in many projections. I think this is a, you know, a, a silver lining in terms of uh, our abilities to achieve some of these high-level goals. And so the pace of technological change, I think, has been uh, greater than what was anticipated for some of the key technologies and there's there's policy reasons for that and i think uh you know for instance the growing um use of feed-in tariffs throughout the world has contributed to the spread of uh, renewable energies and the uptake of renewable energies so i think that's another important high level uh, message in this report we are talking about not only from the supply side but also from demand side from the user side This is uh, the first time in the IPCC Working Group 3 putting the demand as the one of the key in the mitigation option. The good point in the uh, the result of this assessment, we can say like, because we always encourage people to change their lifestyle, change the behavior in relation to uh, do the uh, better effort to on the climate mitigation. And actually, the pandemic situation, COVID, shows that uh, dramatically change the behavior is can be done in a very short term because uh, like the case of lockdown etc in many countries the behavioral change at the massive scale in a short, short time is possible so this is the the short, short uh, message from the the chapter on the demand it is possible we we cannot say it is impossible with it is possible to do dramatical change in a massive scale From what I heard from you from you about the headline messages, would it be correct to say that kind of the big actions that we need to take are that we need to do more to mitigate our greenhouse gas emissions and we need to be more ambitious in the goals we set towards that? We need to be more ambitious and we need to do things at a bigger scale on a spatial scale mm-hmm. and we need to do things quicker in general. So there needs to be faster speed, uh, bigger spatial scale. And there also, and this gets to the point of demand, there also needs to be more attention to the qualitative aspects of how we're doing things. Speed, scale, and the quality of our mitigation efforts, I think, need to change. And on the quality side of things, and this gets to Toto's point about demand, it's not, and I think in past reports, there's been an evolution, but I think in past reports, you know, the emphasis was a lot on technologies and how do you build a, you know, for lack of a better term, how do you build a better mousetrap or how do you build a better power plant? Or, you know, there's still some emphasis in this report. How do you take some of the carbon dioxide and trap it uh, underneath the ground? Of course, that's all fine and well, but if we want to improve the quality of our mitigation efforts, and I think that will also accelerate the speed and change the scale, then we need to think about, you know, how do we change consumer demand for different products and different activities and do so in a way that they're also, to go back to another example that Toto raised, that, that it's also improving the quality of the people's lives. So we need to think about uh, how we can walk from uh, our house to the grocery store. And when we're at the grocery store, we need to think about the products that are um, we're purchasing. So You know, maybe we buy uh, locally grown uh, tomatoes so that they don't have to be shipped from uh, another place. 
And maybe those tomatoes need to be grown in uh, fertilizers that don't lead to greenhouse gases. So we need to think a lot about how our individual actions and our individual mindsets influence demand for different products and services in a way that meet not just climate goals, but broader sustainability goals. And in doing that, then it gets to a question of how do you do that quickly at scale? And I think that's where you start getting into the policy environment and the institutional environment. How do we create that sort of structure that supports that type of decision making? Eric, just very generally speaking, getting into the policy side of things, do you guys think that more needs to be done on the incentive side or on the regulation side? So especially looking at governments, uh, and I guess that's um, preempting your answer a little bit, but I suspect that that will depend very much on the kind of government, right? Because we have very different kinds of government around the world. Um, but let me, let me leave it there. I think one of the themes that comes out of the report is that there's a growing emphasis on instrument mixes or policy mixes. Mm-hmm. Uh, broadly, maybe 20 years ago, there, you know, there's a lot of literature debating the merits of whether or not we wanted to have a carbon tax or um, just an absolute cap on, on reductions and you know, uh, regulatory standards. But I think there's a realization that especially to move at scale, move quicker and achieve some of these quality objectives, that in a lot of contexts, you need to combine government regulation with some market-based incentives. And then the third side of that triangle is what I would call sort of information-based instruments. So awareness raising or using peer pressure from public on industry, using transparency type mechanisms to motivate industry to change. A combination of those three things in sort of a triangle, I think is sort of what the option space is looking like now. Mm -hmm. And in different contexts, where you move on that triangle and where you borrow from might vary. So, you know, China might lean more toward command control type of regulations, but we also see, you know, their five-year development plans are combined now with, uh, you know, emission trading schemes and discussion of carbon taxes. Even though China is sort of more top-down, there are also uh, liberal use of of, uh, some information-based mechanisms to awareness raising. The context might determine where you're situated on that triangle. But I think overall, we're seeing definitely a trend to sort of this policy mix approach. Mm-hmm. And I think it, this leads to another point is that mix, that policy mix, it, a lot of that's coming from literature that's connected into this work on sustainability transitions. And I think what we're realizing now to once again achieve these large scale, you know, spatial scale, quick uh, transformational type changes of our systems that we need interventions at three different levels, right? So one of the other things that you see coming through from the report is this literature on sustainability transitions that also gets tied in with this literature on the uh, instrument mixes. And the sustainability, one of the main approaches to sustainability transitions is what's called a multi-level perspective, where they emphasize that there needs to be in order for big transformational changes, a lot of times there needs to be changes at the what they call the landscape level. So this can be like overarching global markets or norms. Um, And a lot of times things that happen, big changes at the landscape level happen due to big exogenous shocks, big external shocks like a depression or what we've seen recently with COVID. Pandemic, yeah. Yeah, pandemic, right? So that changes the whole sort of way that the world views it, you know, how it operates, how markets operate. um, And that creates a, you know, we call this sort of a puncture in the equilibrium. It creates an opportunity, a window of opportunity 
to change things at what they call the regime level. And within the regime level, that's where you have your sort of policy space and institutions and including these different types of regulatory mixes. And so then, you know, some of the policies and the mixes of policies that come together might change. And also the institutional arrangements might change. So you might have um, now, for instance, the transportation agency is talking more with the environmental people about how we create incentives for teleworking Mm -hmm. um, because we have this exogenous shock. So that, that, that space, the regime space needs to change too. And then at the the last level uh, is what they call the niche, right? And this is where innovation happens. For instance, the development and the spread of lithium batteries to support EVs. Um, This is a lot of times where, you know, people interact on an individual or small group basis with different technologies and they begin to mushroom and grow and cascade. Mm -hmm. um, And you get opportunities for not only innovation, but imitation. And so I think, you know, to achieve the 1.5 degree goals, a lot more emphasis on the demand side, a lot more emphasis on policy mixes, and a lot more emphasis on aligning uh, what happens across, this is, I know, abstract terminology, but this landscape level, uh, the regime level, and, uh, and uh, the, the niche level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in addition to the the in, uh, economic instrument, I think we have uh, mentioned is uh, specifically in a sub- summary for policymaker that say like uh, economic instrument have been effective in reducing uh, emission, complemented by regulatory in, uh, instrument. So we cannot say like which yeah. one is uh, better than mm-hmm. other. It's a uh, complementary. Is other is better in mainly in the national and subnational level and regional level. This is uh, in a high confidence. Mm-hmm. This this next question relates to the technological side of things and, and also a bit about, you mentioned exogenous shocks, Eric. And I guess this has got a little bit to do with both of those, but I have heard, and I don't know how correct this is, but I've heard that the biggest gain that's been made in reducing carbon emissions in the last 10 years has been the switch to fracking uh, in the US uh, in particular. So this is natural gas fracking to replace uh, coal and oil, um, uh, particularly in the US, but I think elsewhere as well. So this is very much not a renewable energy. It's another fossil fuel, but it's about twice as clean as uh, uh, as oil and I think several times cleaner than coal, although I'm going beyond my expertise here. But uh, so, I mean, I guess I don't know what the question is here. I'm just curious what you think about that, the, the, the fact that you know the biggest uh, success that's been that's happened recently, if I'm correct in my understanding, Uh, is something that has nothing to do with renewable energy. Um, yeah, let me just leave it there and see what you think. I would need to check my facts and data to confirm that, but that sounds about right to me, Andre. And I think it, it highlights a, a few things. I mean, I think in some ways it does suggest that, you know, sometimes it, looking at it from sort of a positive light, right? And I think this is something that, you know, I remember actually I took from your presentation, Andre, from ISAP, right? Sometimes sort of small incremental changes can also lead to transformative changes. So if we think of, you know, fracking and the use of natural gas as um, uh, sort of incremental or bridge technology that might open the door uh, for, you know, a transition to renewables and, and even cleaner energy sources, I mean, that might be a sort of positive way of looking at it. Um, and it does in some ways suggest, you know, the potential for small scale technological change to open opportunities for bigger changes, although this is in some ways suboptimal 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the side effects also of the fracking is the leak of methane, which is also a growing and uh, really powerful greenhouse gas and, and also contributes to air pollution. I guess I would give sort of a, a split assessment here as I think it does suggest, you know, the power of industry and government to work together to lead to big transformative changes mm-hmm. uh, potentially, but the impacts of those transformative changes on the given the seriousness of the climate change problem are, are perhaps a little bit, uh, you know, worrying. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think, you know, the other thing that we have seen, like for instance, with the, like the renewable energy revolution is, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, the, the pace of change has gone beyond what was anticipated. Mm-hmm. And even in like the U.S., we've seen transformation of local energy systems and, and whatnot. So, you know, what I would like to see happen over the next five years is, you know, that that same quote that you gave is that renewable energy is the the, the biggest reduction. Um, and I think that's possible. I do think that's possible. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's the same type of logic and model that um, that led to the sort of fracking revolution, but applied more towards other technologies and socio-technological change could be that sort of headline quote. So I look forward to writing that article with you in five years. Yeah. <laughs> A little sidebar on fracking, though. I've also heard terrible reports about fracking making local groundwater flammable by by mm. the gas getting into the water and things. So I think there needs to be some consideration of the local yeah. environment with these things. I don't know yeah. if that's a question, but yeah. Yeah, but if you look at the summary for policymakers, and then if you look across the entire report, there's a very strong emphasis on analyzing the um, possible uh, synergies and um, uh, possible trade-offs um, yeah. between climate change and different development concerns. You know, in the case that Bob raised, um, water pollution um, obviously is, uh, and, and clean water is obviously a, a big concern. And so I think one of the other messages and one of the things that um, comes out of the report is, uh, and, and this also gets back to the point raised by Andre is, when we set up this sort of collection of different uh, instruments, we also need to consider how those instruments can reduce or optimize some of the trade-offs and make sure that, you know, we're not producing uh, more methane, uh, we're not producing uh, more water pollution, and that's going to require, you know, a collection, a suite of different options a lot of times to make sure that our water policies are stronger and our climate policies are stronger. Yeah, We hear about what we can do on the individual level or in our local communities. But you also hear that nothing that we can do at the individual level is going to make a significant impact and any significant change to deal with mitigating the issues of climate change is going to have to be at a large scale with governmental action and large um, industry action. What's your sense on where, how do I phrase this? Where does the balance fall on that? Is there something that we can do? at an individual level that has a significant impact? I'm going to suggest uh, three things. Two of them are sort of more on a personal individual level, but I think can, you know, lead to bigger changes. And then uh, one is more on the getting back to sort of the research side. On the individual level, I think one of the most important things is we need to teach students more about what's happening with climate change and what's happening in this report. From my perspective, there's still far too limited offerings in terms of courses on climate science and especially climate policy and sustainable development and how those linkages work with each other. And if this is going to be, you know, a generation defining issue and problem, we might need universities to have 
climate science and policy departments rather than sort of being you sort of nested within different disciplines. Um, and within IGIS, I'm, we're starting to work with uh, Kyushu University and we've done online trainings all over the place. So I think this teaching aspect, and it's not just teaching and awareness raising, but also empowering individuals to be like the next, Toto might have a better sense of this, but you know, the Indonesian version of Greta Thunberg. We need those type of young people that have this knowledge and can inform policy and get elected into office or become business leaders. And I, I think as researchers, we need to be better and more targeted in how we do that. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is, I think we need to have more discussions with people that don't necessarily believe what's in this report at IGIS. And I think a lot of the research institutes we work with, we have a tendency to preach to the choir. But I think if we can convert people that you know are not so aware of these issues and also might be inclined to to be more skeptical about them then i think that opens pathways for really big transformation so uh, education and speaking to the unconverted and then the on the research side one of the things i think that we need to do more of and this is also featured in the court report to a little bit to a certain extent is better incorporation of the social science research into the especially the technical and the the modeling research so there's more and more discussion in this report of what we call feasibility. And a lot of times this idea of feasibility when it's done in a modeling context is about the technical or the economic feasibility of um, reducing greenhouse gases. And so when people build the models, they see whether or not there's enough technology that's available um, and whether or not it's affordable enough in different countries to be deployed at a large scale. And of course, that's important. But what we're recognizing now is the sort of social feasibility and the political and, and institutional feasibility of a lot of mitigation options is, uh, is pretty low. And the feasibility or the barriers in these areas are just as high as the technical and the economic barriers. And so one way, I think, to motivate policymakers to you know, do you go back to Toto's terminology, the enabling environment to create this enabling environment or to use powerful regulatory mixes is to show them that when we incorporate these things into our models, this is the type of thing that can unlock some of the mitigation potential. This might be the reason why, you know, we've been doing this integrated assessment modeling for about 30 years. But increasingly, you know, we always see that, you know, the result report is we still have these ambition gaps or these implementation gaps. And I think part of the reason is uh, social science researchers do not have as a prominent place in the modeling community. So if we can, in our modeling framework, show that increasing capacity in some of these areas um, is one of the keys to moving forward, um, I think that will also help bring about bigger and tra more transformative changes. With that, I think I'd like to wrap up by asking for your final thoughts on the process or the report in general. Well. I I think just, yeah, maybe two final thoughts is uh, one is I think that one of the key insights from this report is that climate change and solving the climate change problem is less and less about just thinking about climate change, but thinking about development and how we do development. And so you see like a, some emphasis on shifting development pathways. Mm -hmm. And I think that the sort of Venn diagram here is that, you know, we have this big circle of development right and then within that circle there's a sustainable development and there's ways to respond to the climate change problem you know sort of a smaller circle 
that are sustainable and there's others that are are not so sustainable and i think we're becoming more attuned to what that balance looks like and how to lean more into the sustainable development pathway um, in a way that will shift the way we do development and i think that something that's runs through all of the chapters in the report at least the the ones that, that I've read, I have to be honest, I haven't read all 3,000 pages of the report. And then uh, the second thing is, uh, I would suggest is for me personally, not always, but most of the time, this was one of the most nourishing and, and fulfilling experiences I've had um, as, a, as a researcher. Because to go back to this you know, multi-level perspective, one of the things that we're doing with this report is changing the sort of normative space, the way that we look at the world and you know where we situate our space in the world and and changing that sort of normative and, and ideational space i think would be something that you know 100 years from now hopefully uh, the planet that uh, still exists in good shape you know people will look back on and say that this is something that a bunch of individuals came together to do um, in a way that really led to a better world for future generations and not only people, but the, the planet more generally. And to contribute to that is really sort of something that's been quite an honor. Thank you for listening to About Sustainability. Please subscribe at podcast.iges.jp or search for About Sustainability wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you've got feedback, you can review us on your podcast directory of choice or reach out on Twitter at IGES underscore EN. About Sustainability is produced by the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies. Any views expressed during the podcast are those of the speaker at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the views of IGES. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. We don't take that lightly and we hope you'll join us next time.